You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan. I can't remember, Wade, if we've ever had a nostalgia-themed episode before, but we can go ahead and say that this will be the first one because we are definitely going to be looking back into the past with these two reviews. Yeah, you're right, Kevin. But I, I did have one question. Are we singing our never-ending story duet now, or is that going to come later on in the episode? Wait, I think it's probably better if we leave all the singing for a special bonus segment for our Patreon supporters. You know, really leave the good stuff for them. Speaking of good stuff, today on the episode, we're going to be reviewing the newest season of Netflix's smash hit, Stranger Things Season 3. In our second segment, we're also going to come together to talk about Danny Boyle's new film, Yesterday. We hope that if we disagree, we can work it out. But if it's bad, we won't just let it be. I'll stop now, but hey, Wade, don't make it bad. It's Yesterday and Stranger Things Season 3 on this episode, episode 209 of Seeing and Believing. You let us in. Yes, we are here. Episode 209 of Seeing and Believing. Now, Kevin, I was born in 1987, so I'm not an 80s child, but I feel like I resonate with the 80s. And maybe maybe because it is kind of back in style, the 80s are cool. Are you, are you halfway an 80s child? Are you firmly in the 90s camp? I'm I'm firmly in the 90s camp. I was born a few years before you were, but even so, the 80s were pretty much over by the time I actually had the ability to form new memories. So I don't really think I can honestly say that I have fond memories of the 80s because I don't really remember them. Uh, I'm pretty much a 90s guy, I think. Okay, no, that, that, that makes sense. I do think, though, if I were to break down some of my favorite films of all time, most of them were released in the 1980s. I think the 80s is like my cinematic decade. Do you have an idea? I'm putting you on the spot here. Do you have an idea <laughs> of when your like ideal cinematic decade was? Was it the 80s? Was it the 90s? Hmm. Is it right now? I don't know. Oh, man. That's a good question. I think if I had to pick a favorite decade... Uh, it, it might be the 2000s. Uh, that is partly colored by the fact that was when I really started getting into movies in a big way was around that time. I'm also pretty partial to the 1950s. I think that mm. there's a lot of good stuff that came out of that decade. You know, a few few okay movies from <laughs> from that decade as well, you might say. I Yeah, I would say 
the 1950s w- would would be coming in close. I I think this decade's actually pretty good. There are a number of movies from the 2000s that I probably need to check out, but there are some there's some great films there. We're going to go ahead and jump into our episode. It's funny that we're reviewing yesterday during the second half of the show because for segment 1, we're leaving the present and we're taking a trip back in time. We're returning to the days when visiting a shopping mall was a revolutionary concept, when Star Wars was at the top of the box office, and when Russia was our fiercest national foe. No, I'm not talking about 2018. It's the 1980s, as portrayed in the newest season, season three, of Netflix's hit science fiction television series, Stranger Things, starring Winona Ryder, David Harbour, Finn Wolfhard, Millie Bobby Brown and Joe Curie season three is once again set in the quaint town of Hawkins, Indiana. Only this time, instead of the U.S. government opening up a portal between our world and the mysterious upside down, it's those pesky Russians. Their work has also awakened the blood-curdling mind flayer, a savage and mysterious creature bent on destroying one of the few individuals who can stop it, Eleven. L. Kevin, with a show as popular and as bingeable as Stranger Things is, reactions are likely going to cut across the spectrum, with some people loving it and with others not wanting to waste any more time on the series. Before we dive in to talk about some of the finer details of Season 3, I'd like to get your overall thoughts on this newest set of episodes. After getting through all eight, what is your general takeaway? Is it, quote, bad to the bone, or is it just posing? I think it's hitting diminishing returns really hard. That's not really a a nice little 80s reference, but it's about as succinctly as I can can put it. I liked the, the first season pretty well of Stranger Things. The second season I had some problems with, but overall I thought was was pretty strong. It was a lot of fun. I think it's pretty clear at by the eighth episode of season three of Stranger Things that the Duffer brothers are kind of running out of ideas for the setting and for these characters. I'm I was a little bit disappointed to see that yet again the main antagonist of this season of Stranger Things is a creature from the upside down, a creature that by the way we we did catch glimpses of in the previous season. The Mind Flayer was kind of the big bad of the earlier season. He did stay safely ensconced in the the Upside Down. We really only saw him as a presence. The big scary beasties that actually were in the world of Hawkins, Indiana were those, the Demigorgons, right? In this season, he comes through himself, although maybe not in the way that you would expect. And I, I don't know. I think I think the fun of the early seasons, or at least the promise that those early that first season showed, was the idea that Hawkins, Indiana, was sort of a a strange place that was a magnet for all sorts of weirdness. And the fun would be that maybe every season would feature some sort of new or fresh paranormal happening. Because part of the fun, I guess, of Stranger Things is watching these characters figure out something's wrong and slowly kind of work their way to figuring out 
what exactly is wrong and how they can get things back to normal. In this third season where yet again they're dealing with the upside down and yet again the problem is that there's a rift opening somewhere and yet again L kind of has to go toe to toe with whatever beasts come out of that portal, it's beginning to feel like we're moving in circles a little bit. And that's disappointing considering that it that kind of circularity almost infects the characters as well. I don't know that this latest season really takes the plot anywhere interesting or even the characters to any place particularly interesting. So I was a little bit disappointed by it, but I am curious to know your take because if I remember correctly, you were an even bigger fan of at least the early seasons of Stranger Things than than I was. Yeah, I really like season one. And I, I don't know if any season of the show is going to be able to capture that lightning in a bottle that the first season did. And I, I liked season two as well. This one is it's all right. I think the I think the series suffers in the first half and you get all these storylines, all these plot lines. The characters are once again kind of divided up and they're each on their own adventure and most of those aren't all that interesting. At least half of them are. I think there's four main storylines. And I I was frustrated by that and I was feeling a little bit disconnected to the characters. I will say this, the second half of the season ramps up, and we get a lot of fun action. I think thematically, we don't get anything all that new. We get some some ideas here and there. I think that we get a lot of the same. These characters, once again, they are coming together, and they are fighting this giant foe, and it all kind of comes to a climax. But it is enjoyable to watch. And I will say this, that... Even though some of the characters frustrate me, even though some of the characters and their pairings are kind of boring and they don't really do much, I did enjoy kind of binging this season, watching, I think it was like one episode a day for eight days. It was something nice to look forward to. Now, am I going to go back and rewatch this? Probably not. I I do want to go back at some point and rewatch season one because I did enjoy it. I just, I think that you captured it best when you said the law of diminishing returns. And we're kind of seeing that here and we get a couple of new characters, but most of those are, are one dimensional. I will say this probably a couple of times throughout this segment, but I really do think that the best character at this point is Joe Keery's character. He plays Steve Harrington. And in the first season, he is kind of a terrible person. And now he is, he's this lovable character. And almost everyone I talk to says he's, he's some of my favorite. Uh, he's one of my favorite characters. And, and maybe that captures why I think this, season struggles is most of the characters are not developing and changing like they should and if they are it's kind of small increments here and there but it's it's not much to keep the show interesting whereas we have someone like Steve who uh, you know has changed throughout these three seasons and you you're really kind of expecting to see where he goes 100% that uh Steve Harrington is the MVP of this entire season. He is such a joy to watch, and he's 
unlike most of the rest of the characters, he still it still seems like the the writers have places for him to grow. In fact, it, it's it's interesting that you bring up his characterization in the first season of Stranger Things because whereas Steve kind of makes this journey from sort of the stock, uh, bad, popular boyfriend character and over the course of these three seasons grows into somebody who's much more multi-layered and complex and sympathetic it's almost like all of the other characters have been taking the same journey except in reverse they start off being so clearly drawn and likable in season one and here in season three i i don't think i really like any of these characters it's such a a, a strange phenomenon because the first two seasons, they are so good. In this one, though, it it feels they they feel thin. They don't feel like they're really growing. And in order to generate conflict for them uh, between the characters, interpersonal conflict, it seems like the Duffer Brothers are kind of pushing them into this shrill register that doesn't really fit with the series' aims and doesn't really fit with what we already know of them as characters. So I'll give an example. There's uh, this long-running dynamic between uh, Sheriff Hopper, played by David Harbour, and Winona Ryder's Joyce Byers. Uh, And in the early seasons, it was kind of like, you know, there was kind of this low level of romantic tension, but it wasn't really the focus. And that was kind of enjoyable. We got to see them do things other than kind of bounce off of each other or pine after each other. And that was good. In this season... By contrast, they spend almost the entire run of episodes just, you know, just them one-on-one, maybe with a couple of supporting characters entering the fray, but we very rarely see them actually interact with the central cast of uh, children until the, pretty much the climax, which kind of leaves them in this strange place where they're spinning their wheels and there's not really anywhere for them to go uh, dramatically. Now, there's something that that tells me that the Duffer Brothers kind of do this by design. The The sitcom Cheers is called out uh, early on in the season as sort of like the, the Sam and Diane will-they-won't-they they dynamic. And it seems like the Duffer Brothers are very intentionally kind of trying to create a Sam and Diane dynamic with Hopper and Joyce. But the problem is that this isn't a sitcom. So the the bickering and the the tension and the veering from liking each other to disliking each other doesn't read as likable. It reads as annoying and just kind of very um, angry almost. Like they, they don't seem like they like each other that much, which I think if you took the characters from Cheers and stuck them into a more... Uh, dramatic or at least grounded setting, they would kind of come off the same way. And it just creates the overall impression that the Duffer Brothers are trying to do things outside of their genre comfort zone with season three, and it simply just isn't working. Yeah, and I like Winona Ryder, and and she's she's interesting in this show, Uh, but I'm not really sure what she's doing in season three. It's this... I don't know. It's just kind of back and forth and strange. And then David Harbour's character has been on a journey since the first season. We do know that he lost a daughter. And so he's becoming a parent. He, he's fathering Eleven. And he bounces back and forth between this this fatherly figure and someone who is just kind of off 
the rails, and it, it doesn't necessarily work. Simultaneously, the other group that doesn't work is Nancy and Jonathan, and they go off on this little adventure uh, at the beginning of the season, just like they did last season, and it's just very boring. Their their relationship doesn't have any sort of chemistry. The best group does include Steve. It includes Dustin. It includes uh, Erica Sinclair. She played a small role in previous seasons, and she's... Uh, out there now kind of in a in a bigger role and then Maya Hawk who plays Robin and she's the daughter of Ethan Hawk and Uma Thurman and that group is really fun and there's a lot of relationship dynamics and building that that's that's happening there there seems to be development whereas the other characters almost feel static I do want to talk to Kevin about the nostalgia factor, and I wanted to chat with you about this as I'm watching the show because this is overflowing with 80s references, not just in the background of the picture, uh, not just in the soundtrack, which I'm sure the, the royalty rights for this could probably buy a couple of small islands. There are multiple classic songs in every single episode. I was annoying Priscilla just kind of counting them as we go, uh, but also just in the plot of the movie, we get this character who's like, who's basically uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger in Terminator. He's representing this Terminator character, and it's very much on purpose because it's trying to connect in some way to the '80s. And I don't know if that works as well as it should. Sometimes it does. There's the never-ending story song, which we don't want to spoil, but that is pitch perfect that's an incredible scene but in other moments it it doesn't how does the nostalgia factor work for you in this season it feels to me like the nostalgia in season three stranger things is there mostly because it's the show's brand not because it serves a purpose in the grand scheme of things so If you think about a show like Mad Men, which is very much a period piece, just like Stranger Things is a period piece, Mad Men is obviously couched in all sorts of period signifiers that are kind of fun to engage with. Now, you think back to the time where, you know, everyone wore suits to work and there was, you know, all all sorts of cultural differences and, you know, alcohol and cigarettes were, were more free-flowing and, you know, men had, had like, really neat haircuts and women always wore really uh, interesting dresses. You know, like, the, the costuming was a big part of the appeal of Mad Men. But the show wasn't just playing those, those period signifiers for their own sake, right? Like, we weren't watching Mad Men just because... We liked looking at John Hamm's haircut or his tailored suits. We were watching it because it was using those period signifiers to really take us back into a different time and really reveal some things or maybe recontextualize some things so that it kind of became new to us and took us into interesting storytelling places where the idyllic time of the late 50s and the 60s was revealed to be maybe not quite so idyllic after all. Uh, With Stranger Things, there's a lot of period signifiers in this show as well, but it doesn't seem like they're there for any other purpose than to sort of tickle the nostalgia bone a little bit. And that's, I think that's a problem. In earlier seasons, there was just as much nostalgia 
stuff going on in those. But it felt like the Duffer Brothers had a stronger handle on how they were using those um, nostalgic references to create mood and atmosphere and kind of take you back to a kind of entertainment experience that you would have had watching, you know, a, a, an original film from the 80s, like, you know, say The Goonies or something, or Poltergeist. In this season, it feels mostly like that stuff is in there t- to make you feel nostalgic, but the the genre needle is, needle is all over the place, and it creates some tonal problems. So you have kind of this very gory horror vibe going on through all this thing that's kind of playing off of John Carpenter's The Thing quite a bit, you know, very like blood and gore and ooze. Um, And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but it sits really uneasily next to a Spielberg-like chase scene where we're getting this John Williams score playing while, you know, the, the characters are wisecracking while they're fleeing from this monster who's chasing them down the road. And it leads to an experience where you're watching the show and you're not sure how seriously you're supposed to be taking it or if you're just supposed to flip your brain off and enjoy the fact that they're singing the never ending st- the the theme from never ending stories i mean that's a fun moment but it just i it doesn't seem to serve a purpose other than that it's fun to remember the never ending story and i think that that works that it functions in a different way from the nostalgia of the earlier seasons. I I don't think it works really very well at all in this new season. Yeah, I mean, you're right in that, like, the the John Carpenter body horror here does feel out of place and and very different from other sections of the show. And I felt like the earlier seasons, like you said, created this mood that made you feel like you were in a Goonies-style story. Or help to, I guess, contribute to that yearning that you feel in something like E.T. Here, it's not always done with that type of grace. And I think I'm okay with a television show or movie like this just throwing the references out there for fun. It is kind of, it is set in the 80s. So, hey, that that's fine. The Goldbergs, I like that television show. And that's just references just for the sake of of references. I think the show does miss an opportunity to perhaps say something about this era or the these people through those pop cultural artifacts and perhaps say something about where we're at. I think when it's at its worst, it's throwing in those references when they don't actually fit in this story. So an example of this is we get this very short subplot with Mrs. Wheeler, and it's the show seems to be harking back to the this 80s movies trope where, oh, the you know, the the good-looking lifeguard that everybody wants to be with. And that moves forward the plot at the very beginning of the season, the very first episode. And then Mrs. Wheeler's character is gone. The parents are kind of out of the picture throughout most of these seasons, uh, as if to kind of talk about maybe the absence or the different styles of parenting back in the 80s. And 
this season wanted to include some sort of trope or cliche. Hey, this is something we see in 80s movies. Let's kind of play around with it. And it didn't connect to the rest. I almost felt the same, too, with the Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator character. It, it It's definitely a nod, like I mentioned. But does it add to the story, or does it just kind of feel like a distraction? So, at its best... This is a show that employs these tropes for fun and perhaps creates some sort of yearning or compares our lives, uh, our life to life in the 80s. At worst, it's just kind of distracted because it wants to pack just so much into this one season. And that's kind of what I meant when I said earlier that this feels like it's more the show maintaining its brand rather than thoughtfully thinking about how it can use nostalgia, which is, you know, it's totally fine to have nostalgia in the show, but it doesn't seem to be thinking about the ways that that nostalgia forms something that is its own thing. Like, I, you know, I can't imagine if there, if this were sort of, a show that were set in the 80s but didn't really lean so hard into evoking the you know the entertainment or the products of the 80s i i'm not sure there would be really anything left for for this third season at least it feels like this third season it feels like with this season the nostalgia and all of that evocation of the the entertainment and the products is like the the support beams of the house and the plot is kind of just there to paper over it and give it a shape that looks kind of like a house whereas in the earlier seasons it felt like the plot was really what was interesting here it was interesting watching Joyce Byers you know try to solve the mystery of her missing son it was interesting watching the relationships unfold between and among the various characters um the nostalgia signifiers and the genre elements were really nice when they were there but they were sort of like the cherry on top of the sundae it almost feels like this is you know a a three-course meal in which every single meal is a banana split you know and it 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 wears on you after a while and you kind of have a sugar crash when you're like okay you know i get that this guy is essentially riffing on the terminator series but why is he here? What is interesting about him? What, what, why do I care about this particular action sequence? Other than that, it's interesting to point and go, oh, I, I get that. And I don't think that the Duffer brothers, they don't answer that concern adequately. Yeah, no, and, and I agree. It, it, and it is this, uh, me having all these critiques, but also saying, oh man, those last, three or four episodes were they were just a lot of fun and i thought they were pretty entertaining and two i i do like how the duffer brothers portray these characters of course 11 has these you know she has these superpowers and she can kind of do whatever but most of the other characters are they're they're not as prepared to fight these types of battles even david harbour's character as a sheriff he's not this superhero he's kind of this rough and tumble cop these teenagers are not the most athletic individuals in fact in the first two seasons steve is getting beaten up every single season and in spite of that this show especially in the last couple episodes portray these characters as very heroic 
And there are a couple of moments throughout the series where these kids kind of put their lives on the line for each other if just to distract so the other person can get away. And I think there's something kind of special in those moments uh, about friendship and about sacrifice and about growing up. There's I'm not going to say who, but there's one character in the last episode and he pulls out a slingshot and he 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 tries to distract so that he can help his friends and it just these types of moments strike me as very brave and very courageous and in that sense very virtuous and it's nice to see these types of characters who are not superheroes they're just kids and yet they're going to try to do whatever they can to help their friends i wanted to read something to you from Nick Olson. Now, Nick did not send this in to the show. This is on his Twitter. And uh, always always think about what you tweet because we might read it on the show. But on his personal Twitter, he said, the most interesting thing about the season isn't getting enough attention from the show itself. What happens when the tension creeps in that kids no longer want to be kids? Particularly when, arguably, children are what made this show such a success? And I thought that was an interesting question. Now, Nick goes back and and he finishes the season and he talks about there are some moments that hit on this theme. And I want to touch on some of those, Kevin. But I I wanted to ask you about that. How How does this show hit or miss that, hey, kids don't want to be kids anymore, when this is a show that revolves around kids being kids and that was part of what drew people uh, to this to this season and into the show overall yeah i mean i think that it would be great if this season of the show seemed interested in that question that that nick posited i don't think it really is or at least the way that it goes about addressing the question maybe maybe the the right way to put this is the way that it goes about addressing that question aren't particularly interesting. With the exception, and again, I'm going to come back to Steve being the MVP of this show, is the the journey that his character has gone on over these three seasons is something really interesting to see. It's basically a very sympathetic portrait of the jerk who peaked in high school and kind of has to figure out what his life looks like now that he's not the the big man on campus with the great hair that you know, all the all the girls fawn over. Watching Steve try to figure out, well, you know, I'm not going to college. All of my friends have gone off to college and are having experiences I don't have while I'm stuck in my small Indiana hometown slinging ice cream. Like, that's an interesting place to put that character. And it's interesting watching him at first really resent that place and then come to terms with it and even maybe find a lot of of meaning and uh, meaningful relationships in that context. That's really interesting to watch. I think he's really the only character, though, that changes in in that particularly interesting way. Now, of course, these central cast of characters who start off as, as smaller children and in this third season have basically grown up into teenagers, they're dating, they're trying to figure out opposite sex relationships, and trying to figure out what it looks like to grow into your own person and grow apart. There's the subplot where Will Byers is still really into D&D and uh, Lucas and Dustin 
and Mike kind of aren't really into that anymore. They've, they've moved on to other interests and other friendships. And there's a really great scene where Will kind of deals with that realization. And it is very sad. It's a moment that is all too rare in this season and hints at the maybe the the season that it could have been but never really quite is. Yeah, you know, and I have I have that written down that trauma that Will experiences and he's still dealing with that all these seasons later and he wants an escape from the real world. He wants to go back to his childhood and these other characters don't. And I think the the show will give us some moments like that, but it doesn't give us enough of those or develop those enough either. And I, I think to maybe where the season kind of closes up is that it it is about references, right? This is about nostalgia. This is referencing our past, not not just pop culture, but who we who we are as children. And I think the film starts to get at this this idea that growing up is affirming and it's great but it's also kind of tragic and that we're leaving all of these things behind and i wish the the television show would have hit on that more because it is a it is worth exploring we want to watch this show so we can remember what it was like to be a child again these characters in the show want to escape that and grow up where's that where's that tension and the show could have turned the screws on that i I don't think it did as as well as it could have listeners that is our review of netflix's stranger things season three we know that many of you have seen it and we want to hear your thoughts do you agree that steve is the best character on the show or do you have some other opinion that's not as good as that one let us know you can tweet us at cbelievepod, at cbelievepod. You can also email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Let us know your thoughts on the season. In just a moment, we're going to be reviewing Danny Boyle's Yesterday. Don't go anywhere. If There's a Reason by Magico Tree. We really appreciate everyone who's taken an opportunity to support us uh, on Patreon. And when you do that, you support our podcast. You help us get our episodes 
out there. Kevin, it's really easy to support us on Patreon. As you know, we've kind of created this together and we're excited about the opportunities that it's given, seeing and believing. We have a couple of different levels of donations and the best one, the one that I'm probably, I'm probably closest to is the what can you buy for $5 level. It's five bucks a month and it has me thinking. Since that is the name, what can you buy for $5? Kevin, what could some of our listeners hypothetically buy for 5 bucks? Well, we were talking during an, an interlude uh, during recording about how Steve is objectively the best part of Stranger Things Season 3. And I would happily give $5 for his little sailor suit that he wears throughout the entire season. That thing is great. I want my own little uh, little sailor hat with my name on the rim, so it's nice and personalized. My own little short blue short shorts and a little uh, neckerchief. It it's just perfection and obviously worth five dollars. A steal at five dollars. It is because a lot of these costumes you can only wear them during Halloween. This is one you can literally wear everywhere. You can wear it to <laughs> yeah. work or church anywhere. You, you, you can dress it up. You can dress it down. It's good for any occasion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's any occasion. It, it, you know, summer, it's shorts. But you can also just kind of pull up some sweatpants over it during the winter. And you, you already have that hat that keeps your head warm. So it really is the ideal outfit. Buy that for 5 bucks. You can also support us on Patreon for $5. Just go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. Yeah, we really love, of course, hearing from all of our listeners, whether they are Patreon supporters or not. Wade, we did get a fair amount of feedback on last week's episode where we wrapped up our Summer of Stan uh, with the review of Barry Lyndon and where we also reviewed Ari Aster's Midsummer. Listener Riley Mann tweeted to us about Midsummer. actually. He had some thoughts about it. He was really on board, Wade, with what you and I said about the film's themes interweaving about the way that religion, or in this case, a cult, can give purpose and structure to a life. I agree that that's just, that's what I found to be most compelling about the film. I know, Wade, that you weren't as big of a fan of it, but... Um, there's a lot to dig into in terms of just personal belief and how that gives meaning to, to some, to somebody earned or not, perhaps. Yeah. I, I mean, the idea of, of, of a paganism of these, these religious beliefs are, are there, obviously. I, I just don't know if the film was attuned to exploring the nature of that belief other than, Hey, this is what people believe. So I know, but I know we talked about this last week and we had that kind of big disagreement, but I appreciate Riley Mann uh, sending that in and just kind of talking through that. We also got some more feedback from Joshua Wilson and he was talking about our review last week of Barry Lyndon. He said, it took my second viewing for me to get Barry Lyndon. I'm slow sometimes uh, when preconceptions get in the way. The satire is every bit as funny as anything in Strange Love. He also says, and I also think Wade answered your question about what director you should focus on next summer at the end of this episode, Edward Yang. And I mentioned A Brighter Summer Day last week, 
and Yi Yi, a film that I, I really do like, and that might be something we can explore in future episodes and just kind of working through his filmography. I know we've gotten some feedback. People seem to like the new film or new television show paired with uh, a series. We did our Summer of Stan, our Stanley Kubrick series. So that's something, Kevin, that I'm always looking at. We're always kind of exploring or thinking through, and I'm sure something else will come along in the future where we'll explore, I don't know, maybe another filmmaker or maybe a period of time. And I think that could be a lot of fun because I, I did really enjoy this uh, Summer of Stan. For sure. That is definitely on our radar for future episodes. We haven't settled on what it'll be, but I think it's safe to say that the Summer of Stan won't be the last time that you get one of these ongoing series on seeing and believing. Listeners, if you have thoughts about anything or want to perhaps pass along suggestions for what you think that upcoming series might be or what it should focus on, we can't promise that we will uh, take your suggestions, but we would be very interested in knowing what you're interested in, what filmmakers you maybe want to learn more about, or maybe a favorite genre that you think uh, gets unfairly overlooked sometimes. You can always tweet us or email us to let us know that. We love to hear from you. Somehow, I'm the only one that remembers the Beatles. Well, play something, yes. Yes. Come on. Yesterday All my troubles seemed so far away Now it seems as though they're here to stay Oh, I believe in Yesterday. When did you write that? I didn't write it. Paul McCartney wrote it. The Beatles. Who? John, Paul, George and Ringo, the Beatles. Which Beatles is this? The insect Beatles or the car Beatles? The pop group Beatles. Nick, help me out here. <laughs> right, yes. Um, there's this problem with musicians. They presume everyone else has this encyclopedic knowledge of obscure pop, in this case, the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, this is the most complicated joke I've ever heard. It's a very nice It's not a song. very nice song, Nick. It's one of the greatest songs ever written. Well, it's not Coldplay. It's not Fix You. So I'd like to reassure listeners before we begin here that there will be few to no Beatles-related puns here in the second half of today's episode. I did my best in the intro to burn through all the ones that we, or perhaps speaking more properly, you, Wade, could think of. So I think we're safe. We're going to not lean too far in that direction, but you know we don't script this out ahead of time, so no promises. Yeah, no, there's there's no promises. You know, a day in the life of seeing and believing, you just never know what's going to happen. We can work it out, though. Uh, we can work it out. <laughs> oh, you're, you're doing it already. <laughs> well, we are, you know, the Beatles do figure, obviously, very prominently in Danny Boyle's new film yesterday that just came out this month. Boyle is a filmmaker who has a lot of affinity for the grand, the romantic, maybe even the fantastical and that's evidenced in this film. Jack Malik, played by Himesh Patel in what is his feature film debut, is a struggling singer and songwriter in an English seaside town whose dreams of fame are rapidly fading, despite the fierce devotion and support of his childhood best friend, Ellie. 
After a freak bus accident during a mysterious global blackout, Jack wakes up to discover that the Beatles have never existed, but he can still remember all of their songs. Performing songs by the greatest band in history to a world that has never heard them, Jack becomes an overnight sensation, though that instant fame and fortune comes with a catch. So, like I said, Wade, this is a movie that doesn't require you to be familiar with the Beatles' body of work, but it sure doesn't hurt if you are familiar with it or have some sort of relationship to the Beatles. So my question for you is, what is your relationship to the quote-unquote greatest band in history? And do you think that Danny Boyle's latest film evokes that body of work in a way that is meaningful or not? I I like the Beatles. I like the Beatles a lot. I I wouldn't call myself a super fan because I know some Beatles super fans, and they would destroy me if I if I said, "Hey, I'm I'm a super fan." But I, I like the Beatles a lot, and I I enjoyed this movie maybe more than it deserved because I I did like hearing their songs and. Patel, his his voice is really good, and I think what this movie has going for it is it's not attempting to recreate the songs themselves. So if you go to you know Rocket Man, the Elton John story, we're actually getting quote unquote Elton John singing that song. So it's a recreation of his original version. Here we get someone who has a pretty good voice singing a cover version of these songs, sometimes with an acoustic guitar, an electric guitar, sometimes with other instruments. Sometimes he arranges the songs a little bit differently or adds a new tweak to the sound. And so I think that's kind of fun. I I actually did kind of walk away thinking about the Beatles and their impact on the world and their impact on me and music's particular impact on me. And what... What musicians, if they were to disappear, would kind of change my life and and could possibly have changed the trajectory of my life? And I think some of those questions are just natural to this story. Uh, the film touches on a couple of them, but I wouldn't say that it explores those questions in a way that I found incredibly meaningful. Actually, I think some of the opportunities are missed. But... I don't know. There was there was just something here that that just connected me to this film, and I you know I had a good time. It's not something that I I would necessarily go and check out again, but sometimes it's nice to just hear some of your favorite songs, some covers, and and that's about it. And I think maybe that's yesterday for me. You know, it, it's funny, but you actually. Like I said, we don't script out the show ahead of time. And in this case, I always wish we had because you basically said exactly what I was going to say in that, uh, at least in terms of your observation about this film feeling like a bit of a missed opportunity. Uh, the script is written by Richard Curtis, who is mostly known for his his writing of romantic comedies. I mean, he uh, wrote and directed the film About Time. He wrote Notting Hill, Bridget Jones's Diary, Love Actually, uh, all you know, all sorts of films that are very famous for being you know these the the epitome of kind of the very entertaining. Uh, if slightly fluffy romantic comedy. And I think that that kind of sensibility isn't a problem for this film necessarily, but it does leave me feeling as if yesterday skates over the surface 
of what is possible with this concept and what is possible with just the, the, the character of somebody who remembers all this great art that somebody else created, and yet he has the chance to introduce it to a world that has completely forgotten it. There's so much potential in that premise, and it feels like uh, Richard Curtis's script and Danny Boyle's honestly kind of odd directing. It feels like there's a lot left on the table in terms of where this could have gone, and it I couldn't help but be a little bit disappointed by it. Yeah, and I think part of it goes with Patel's character, and I think he does a fine job. I just don't know if it's written all that well. I don't think it's a three-dimensional character. At the very beginning, we're asked to kind of make this, to believe this tough sell, that Lily James is kind of, her character has just been supportive and is romantically interested in him for a, a long period of time, and he's kind of oblivious to it, or he kind of brushes it away, and it's it's just, oh, well, well, she's kind of my my manager. And I think that's maybe a good example of his character. The, the film tells us things or has him or other characters tell us things about this character, but we don't really understand some of the motivations behind that. A little later on in the, the movie, Lily James's character basically says that he's, he's changed. And we don't really get that. Now, we, we know he's living a lie. We know that he didn't write these songs and, and he's just skating off of the Beatles' work. But his personality seems to stay mostly the same. He's haunted by this fear that he's going to get caught. But but he hasn't really changed. He's not necessarily a, a bad person. So I, I think the movie just... It does. It kind of skates on by and it tells us things. It wants us to buy into things. And it's like, well, I... I don't know if I necessarily believe that or I don't know if I necessarily buy that. Show me the work that goes along with that. Uh, at the same time, both characters, the main characters, are, are pretty likable and uh, we, we want to see them be together and we want to see them find some sort of success. So we are rooting for them. So it's not that we don't care about them or I'm apathetic towards those characters. I just don't know if I fully understand or know those characters the way the film wants me to understand or know those characters. If we spend a lot of the film really wanting the central couple to get together, it's 100% or maybe 99.9% down to Lily James's performance. She does so much with kind of a nothing part in terms of like this is this is a woman who is essentially she literally says at one point that she has spent half of her life pining for our main character and yet we don't really get a good sense for why she is so stuck on him i mean he's a nice enough guy but he's not particularly talented he's not especially handsome or dashing or charming he's just kind of a guy who's kind of good at guitar and yet she's stuck on for so long and i i kind of spent the entire film waiting for the revelation for you know, what it was about him that caused this powerful attraction. And it basically just comes down to, well, I saw him play at the Battle of the Bands in high school and had a crush. So there go the next 10 years of my life. And Lily James imbues it with such warmth and yearning that you really do buy it in the moment, but it's all down to her. It's not because of anything that's on the page. 
And I think that that kind of is the movie in microcosm to a certain extent, is that everything in this film is sort of presented to us as sort of self-evident. Like the first time, like every single time that Jack plays a Beatles song, everyone reacts as if it is literally the most amazing song they have ever heard in their lives. And sure, the Beatles are were a great band and their songs are very good songs, but the way the movie portrays it, it's sort of like there are these towering works of genius that spell out their genius in neon letters. And I don't really think that that's the way the Beatles songs work. And I don't, I'm not even sure that that's the way any art really works. It's not the, most of the time when you encounter something great, like sometimes you're blown away, but most of the time you're like, that's really good. And the more you think about it, the more you realize how much of a work of genius it is. In this film, it's sort of like, the Beatles were geniuses, ergo, the first time you hear a Beatles song, you're just going to be gobsmacked by its genius. And it's just, I mean, it, it works to set up the premise and it at heart, it's kind of a simple fantasy. So I don't know that it necessarily needs to go into exhaustive detail about why it's genius, but I don't think as it is, it really succeeds at plumbing the depths of what makes a Beatles song so great. Yeah, it, it, at the beginning... When he, I, I almost want to say he gets the superpower. Uh, when he is playing a, a Beatles song, he's playing "Let It Be" for the first time. He's playing it for his family, and you know, I mean, that song is—it's just one of—it's one of my favorites of all time. It's an incredible song, and his parents are hearing it for the first time. And there's a really—it's really funny because they keep interrupting him, or people keep coming in, and they don't really appreciate it the way that that they should, and. I think that's a good scene because it's this idea of, hey, you can have some of the greatest works of art in history and your family doesn't always understand it. It's kind of this, oh, okay, you're just kind of fiddling around with a hobby, right? And I I was thinking at that moment, wouldn't it be funny if this movie basically gave him those songs and he couldn't find fame at all. Nobody really cared. And in that way, it spoke to, okay, what are the cultural sensibilities that happened then? And where are we at now? Would their music, if someone appeared today with their music, would they succeed? Why would they? Why wouldn't they? And I think they leave that on the table. There is one scene where they are uh, talking through band names, and he suggests Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club, and everybody's like, "Whoa, that's way too long." And and that's funny because as a modern culture, we want something quick and we want something fast. And then they take "Hey Jude" and they want to change it to "Hey Dude" because they want to make it a top forty single. Okay, that's funny, and that speaks to where we're at today as a culture and this uh it's it's like the blockbuster effect in movies uh, with music we you know we, we just want something to quickly entertain us so i think those ideas are kind of fun um but we 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 need a little bit more of that and i wanted more of that and instead the movie seems to be kind of wrestling between just being a quirky romantic love story and being a story about fame and about what it means to be an artist and about what it means to be famous and the joys, but also the pitfalls, uh, that, that come that way. Yeah. There's a, there's a moment, uh, maybe halfway through the film where, uh, Jack gets into a songwriting contest with Ed Sheeran, like the real Ed Sheeran. <laughs> he plays himself. 
Um, which is kind of like a cutesy touch that I don't really it's it's get. A, like I, I don't know, I don't I, really I don't, know him too well like his music, but it, I don't know <laughs> some of it works because he doesn't take himself too seriously and he lets the, the movie just kind of make fun of him, and that's funny. But I don't. It's just kind of strange. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Maybe if I were more plugged into like the pop cult, like the pop music conversation, I would understand some dimension of the casting that works. But I, I don't really see what is gained from having Ed Sheeran play himself as opposed to just like having a generic, you know, super big uh, fictional music star play him. But in any case, there's a, a contest uh, where he proposes that Jack and him go in separate rooms for ten minutes. And then they'll they'll write a song during those 10 minutes and then they'll come out and they'll perform it for the crowd and you know whoever wins is going to be the best songwriter. And so it kind of plays out predictably the way you think it will. Ed Sheeran comes out and he plays an okay song and then Jack comes out and he plays a Beatles song and everyone immediately swoons over how amazing it is. And and Sheeran kind of uh, is is blown away and you can tell he's feeling inferior and he's he tells Jack you know you're Mozart which I guess makes me Salieri which is not really to the film's benefit because it reminds you of in Amadeus that film is so perceptive about the way that genius can be unexpected uh, the way that it's not always obvious and also the the very complex ways that people around a genius react to that genius. In Yesterday, it's sort of like everybody hears these Beatles songs and they immediately proclaim this guy the best songwriter who ever lived and he's you know got everyone fawning over him. He's getting record deals. And yet, there's not really a, a sense of how he feels about that. Because he's he is essentially a fraud. He didn't write any of these songs. He's just remembering them, and yet the film never really digs into well, what does it what does it mean to create this art? Like if if he's just essentially copying them out by rote, he's just parroting them back to an audience that has never heard them before. Does it, is something essential lost from the art? There's all sorts of questions swirling around that premise that the film glances off of but never really digs into in a fully satisfying way. And again, that's just it's a huge missed opportunity for such a, an interesting premise. And, and, and that scene is just kind of weird because it is the real Ed Sheeran, and he's saying, oh, you know, I always knew someone better than me would come, and here you are. It's just kind of a strange... <laughs> it's sort of like, <laughs> is Ed Sheeran really... That big of a deal? Like, <laughs> right. is he really thinking like I'm the best uh, pop music star who has ever lived? And like, does anyone think that about Ed Sheeran? Maybe they do. Uh, I, I like I said, I'm not in on the conversation, but it's not Coldplay. It's, just, it's, it's an not odd fixed choice. For sure. <laughs> yeah, um, right. There, there was, and I, I don't know if the I, I well, the film doesn't nail this next sentiment, but but it does at least question that. At one point, there's a character who says. A world without the Beatles is a world that is infinitely worse. And like I said, that line alone, no matter how underdeveloped, there was something kind of going on with the film because it did provoke in me the questions of, okay, how has art, how has art changed my life? And it made me, it made me think about some of those bands that in high school, 
did affect me, uh, some of those movies that did affect me. And we talk about those all the time, uh, the films that really helped change us. And if there was this particular artist or artists that were gone, where would we be at? A- at the same time, the film seems to want to explore the the Beatles and what happened to them and the question of they created this art, but would it be possible that if they were not famous, their lives could be better? And the film doesn't really answer that per se. The ending could be an, one interpretation. But the idea of, you know, we, we create all this, all this artwork, we create something great, and we help the world – but also what what toll could that take on us on us personally and and so i i don't know if the film really explored that as well as it could but there is something to that and then earlier in the movie uh the main character he says if god had even remotely been interested in in kind of helping him along this journey and then there's this act of god where he's given this gift and it it's essentially god saying hey you asked for it I'm going to give you what you asked for, and this character is realizing, well, maybe it's not what I what I wanted after all. So there is this idea of, of fame and what that means, and almost almost a spiritual dimension uh, to this upside down world, or should I say, this Dutch camera angle world. Uh, I wish the film would have kind of leaned into that a little bit more because it did bring those questions to the surface for me. I'm not sure that it it produced anything past those maybe surface level nods. You mentioned the the spiritual effects of of massive success and fame and and being a world famous artist. And I would say the most interesting parts of this film are the moments where Jack is obliged to kind of fake the artistic process because you know he didn't write any of these songs he's kind of a mediocre musician himself so when somebody asks him point blank like what was your inspiration for hey jude you know like who is jude what made you write this what does abbey road mean to you like what like what what is the meaning of your art to you and the film focuses on jack's face the camera focuses on his face as he kind of stumbles his way through a lie to make it sound like it is meaningful to him when in reality he didn't write it. He just appreciates it. And that's a really compelling moment when it pops up a couple of times throughout the film is that the fact that he isn't the creator, he's an appreciator an aficionado perhaps, but still on the outside looking in on the genius of these songs so when he tries to take that mantle onto himself, take something he hasn't earned, like what does that do to him as a person? That's a theme that these scenes hint at. The film lets him off the hook way too easy, in my opinion. Um, and to some extent, I kind of defend it by by saying like this is more or less a fantasy. Like it's more about enjoying the thought experiment more so than really digging deep into the questions. So. I don't think the film is trying and failing at some sort of profundity. I just don't think it's all that interested in those questions. But it's most compelling when it does kind of betray a slight interest in those questions. Yeah, it, and really just he explores the history of those songs that he's writing. And Hey Jude, written to 
uh, a son. It, it definitely means something uh, to these artists. And this character doesn't feel that connection. And so the, the movie's almost highlighting, is it better to be known and loved and understood or yearn for something and have art come out of that and produce something authentic? Or do we just want the effects of that art, which are just the notoriety or the riches or the fame? And I, I think, like you said, I don't think it's trying to pull out these artistic questions and these big ideas of vocation and... Uh, and the reason that art does exist and the reason why we create art, uh, it's there. And, uh, you know, mostly what we're left with is, is, a, is a fine film with some characters that we seem to like to hang around and some music that we really enjoy. And it's kind of fun. And I, I think in the end, for most people, I think, uh, I think it's going to work for them. Uh, yeah, you know, it's a testament to just how sturdy the Beatles music is that like I think I heard just about everybody who is leaving the theater humming one of the songs under their breath. Like it's just it's infectious. And this movie I think was was trying for a little bit of that kind of infectious crowd pleasing quality as well. So it's kind of it's it's frothy, it's it's bubbly, it's it's a lot like maybe those those rom coms that Richard Curtis has written. Um, it does present of a a bit of a missed opportunity. Like I would have liked to have seen maybe a Paul Thomas Anderson like wow. make a movie with this exact same premise. How great would that be? Oh man! But well, uh, and and then too, we've been alas. getting we've been getting a lot of these biopics, and I think I appreciate something like this more because instead of just saying we're going to explore the life of the celebrity. Instead, it's saying, hey, we're going to explore the music of these bands, of this band, and we're going to try to figure out what that music might mean to us today. And that's probably why I'm so excited about Blinded by the Light that's coming out. Bruce Springsteen's one of my favorite artists, and that film is telling Springsteen's story through someone hearing his story and and connecting to his music. And so I'm really, I'm going to be interested in seeing that and taking that and Yesterday together and kind of comparing it to some of these other biopics like Rocket Man or Bohemian Rhapsody and, and seeing, okay, how do these, how do these stories tell the, us about the artist without actually featuring the artist, and I I think that could be uh, pr- pretty pretty neat and pretty telling at you know at the end of it. Yeah, there's something the, the if there's a central moral or theme to yesterday, it's that the what the Beatles created was a gift to the rest of the world, and uh what jack ends up doing is essentially giving that gift back to a world that has forgotten it and you know wh- whether or not you you agree that that's kind of actually what he's doing in this film it's a nice way to think about art as not just something that one person owns or the only geniuses make it's more like it's a gift that that the creator gives to the rest of the world for for their enjoyment. And I think there's there's something inherently compelling about that. Well, listeners, that is our review of Danny Boyle's Yesterday. If you've seen this film and have thoughts on it, definitely let us know. There is a lot to talk about in terms of its view of art and the artist. 
But for now, Wade, speaking of great geniuses, we are going to transition into the part of the show where you and I recommend a work of genius to seeing and believing nation. What do you have for us this week? Yeah, so I was thinking about John Carpenter, and we mentioned The Thing and how the body horror in The Thing is kind of featured prominently in Stranger Things Season 3. And I was reminded of a film I just saw for the first time. It's been on my list for the longest. And for some reason, I I had some trouble getting a hold of it. But I did finally watch it. And that's the 1981 film Escape from New York. You know, this has kind of become a cult classic. But when people talk about Carpenter, it's one of those that's, that's kind of lower on the totem pole, right? We're talking about some of his other movies over this one. This is a film that uh, it's set in 1997 and Manhattan has become this giant maximum security prison and the U.S. president crashes into Manhattan and it just so happens that Kurt Russell's character Snake Plissken is about to be released on the island because he attempted to rob a bank. So they recruit him and he goes in to uh, try to save the president of the United States. You know, the back half of this film becomes pretty generic, but I really enjoy the world that's kind of set up with this movie and set up with this story. And even when it does become generic, I still think it's it's a lot of fun. And, and too, as I'm watching this, I'm reminded that some of these big action movies that we look back on weren't as concerned with action as it was con- as they are concerned with these characters at at the center of of the screen we also get a, a pretty good turn by Harry Dean Stanton he plays the brain as well as some other side characters so uh, this is this is a lot of fun it's a movie that i enjoyed uh, haven't seen the sequel yet but uh, i would definitely recommend escape from new york you know, it's we we talk a lot about great actor director pairings, right? You know, like your your Toshiro Mufunes and your Akira Kurosawa's, and you know, these these director actor pairings that create this incredible body of work, and and both of them kind of raised the other's profile. I feel like a pairing that doesn't get talked about often enough in terms of that dynamic is Kurt Russell and John Carpenter. They escaped from New York and The Thing both just did so much to, in some ways, cement a certain persona for Kurt Russell, or or at least in my mind. When I think of Kurt Russell, I think of the version of him that we get in John Carpenter movies. So that's that's a really good pick. Uh, my pick is, uh, I don't know if, if uh, work of genius is necessarily the right word to describe this film, but it's definitely a really good one. It's uh, 2006's Half Nelson, directed by Ryan Fleck and Anna Bowden. And Fleck and Bowden are best known nowadays for being the ones to launch the Captain Marvel franchise for Marvel. Um, but this film is... In some ways, uh, the sort of not the sort of film you would expect would put them on the radar of a studio looking for Helmers for their next big action franchise. It's a the small kind of indie film about a high school teacher played by Ryan Gosling, who is a drug addict, and the friendship he forms with one of the students at the high school where he teaches, who kind of tries to help pull him out of his destructive addiction. It's really acutely observed. It's 
extremely well acted. This was the film I think that really sold me on uh, Ryan Gosling as an actor. I think he's tremendous in it and just shows such subtlety that it really uh, presages his growth into the sort of leading man who would get nominated for Oscars one day. But anyway, he's really good in this film. It's a uh, very interesting one. And the milieu it sets it in is, is sort of this uh, really interesting look at uh, urban uh, high school in California. So I, I think it's really strong. And if you're looking for a film from Fleck and Bowden that's a little bit less punchy, uh, this is a good one for you as well. I have not seen uh, Half Nelson. I, I've heard about it, read about it. It's something that I, I need to catch up on. But yeah, the, that's a that's a really good recommendation, uh, listeners. That's the end of our episode. And Kevin, I think we should probably go ahead and just announce this this week. But next week, we plan to talk about the Circle of Life. And it moves us all, Kevin. It moves us all. We're going to be discussing <laughs> the Lion King. This is how how many Disney live action remakes have we talked about this year? Is this number three for us? It is this is number th- I, I'm I, Aladdin part Dumbo. Of oh gosh, I mean, I mean, it started with what their Cinderella remake. Who even remembers? I, I I kind of think that these are the films they make to sort of just they're almost designed to be forgotten (laughs) like you you watch them and you have a good time and you remember the animated films and then you kind of you go home afterwards and like i can't imagine anybody remembering them in a decade yeah well Uh, i i'm interested in in seeing how i react to this film i can't say i'm interested in this film but (laughs) what what if it's really good very good (laughs) it could be amazing we could walk out and say oh it's way better than the animated film. I mean, it's not probable, but it's possible that we could say I, that. Well, okay. Here's the thing, though. Like, I, I'm i not necessarily anticipating that The Lion King is going to be a masterpiece. But I will say that I've never really been the biggest fan of the animated original. I like it okay. It's fine. But I know that there are people who count it among the very best animated films that Disney has ever done. And I, I'm not quite on on board that train. So there's definitely not going to be any bias, at least on my part, going into the into the remake about, you know, crossing my arms and saying, well, the original was so much better. That's not my story. Maybe it's yours, Wade, but I don't know. We'll see either way. Yeah, I mean, I'll, maybe I'll go into more detail. I think, I think the original's fine. I watched it a lot, so it's got that nostalgia factor. Uh, the back end, I don't think, is as good as the front end. It's, I don't think it's, it's, well, it's definitely not the, the best Disney animated film. It's not even the best of the Renaissance. I think something like maybe Beauty and the Beast would be up there. But uh, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. Listeners, we want to thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by our Patreon supporters in ChristandPopCulture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.